0: Hi, and welcome to this week's FSF and Tapestry podcast. I'm Helen, and this week I'm joined by Jules from our education team and our guests, Nathan Archer and Beatrice Merrick. Nathan is an associate at Early Education and has worked in early childhood education for 20 years. He's a trained early childhood and primary Montessori teacher, holds an MA from Sheffield, and is currently studying for a doctorate. Beatrice is Chief Executive of Early Education. She holds an MA in Public Service Management from Sussex and a Postgraduate Certificate in Early Childhood Education from the Institute of Education in London. In this episode, we talked to Beatrice and Nathan about their newly released report, where they looked at recent government policy in early childhood education and care in England, and whether the right balance is being achieved between supporting early learning in high quality provision on one hand, and on the other, providing sufficient, flexible, affordable childcare for working parents. Their report, Getting the Balance Right, is published by the Sutton Trust. Hello, good morning. We welcome Nathan Archer and Beatrice Merrick. Hello. Good morning. Hi, we're going to be talking about their new um, report uh, sponsored by the Sutton Trust um, around all the issues about funding, sustainability, workforce development and general early education provision. Um, We're going to first talk about using early education provision to achieve two goals. One being accessible, cheap childcare to get parents back to work, and the second one being high-quality provision. And this sometimes creates a tension, as the report describes. On one hand, child development outcomes improve most when quality is highest, but the decision to make the 30 hours a universal entitlement was premised on evidence that 15 hours was optimal for improving children's outcomes. However, there's some evidence of longer hours being beneficial for the most disadvantaged children. So, lots of issues there to unpick. Could you just tell us a little bit more about those two goals and the tension between them?
1: Okay, so. Obviously what we ideally want is um, something that is the best for children and that means helping more children get out of poverty. So helping parents get back to work is really important for um, addressing poverty and we know work is the best route out of poverty even though there's a a real issue about the number of working families now who are still in poverty. Um, But if you then put children in cheap childcare um, rather than looking at the quality of that child care and early education, the outcomes for the children are nowhere near as good as if you invest that bit more to give children a really good, high-quality experience that will improve their outcomes and their, their development um, later on. So that's that's where your tension is. That the temptation is just to spend the minimum amount of money, whereas spending a little bit more um, is a far more powerful Um, way of achieving the two outcomes rather than allowing them to, to
0: compete. So it's been suggested by the Education Select Committee, tackling disadvantage in the early years, that the 30 hours childcare policy is actually widening the gap to
1: disadvantaged children. How can that be the case? Okay so um, although there is this idea that sort of 15 hours of high quality early education is enough and that's what makes the difference um, there is some evidence it's not as strong as, as the, the evidence about the 15 hours but there is some evidence that uh, um, more hours do make a difference for The most disadvantaged children and also anecdotally talking to a lot of um, nursery school head teachers and others where previously the um, there were some local authorities in a lot of inner city areas where local authorities were opting to give children um, full-time days maybe because of um, issues at home substance abuse or mental health issues or whatever so it was better environment for the children to be in a 38 hours a full-time place and these um, schools which have experience of um, those children who did have full-time places but who are now only eligible for the 15 hours and then comparing them with the the working uh, families children who are getting 30 hours and they will tell you that they're seeing those gaps widen. Mm.
0: So, so Ofsted, are they measuring the wrong things? Because we know that 95% of settings are good or outstanding, so most settings that these children are attending are good or outstanding. So is Ofsted measuring the wrong thing? Are there other ways of monitoring quality?
2: Yeah, shall I come in on that? I, I think that's really important that you, you flag that up Helen around those, those figures around good or outstanding and, and that is obviously very positive and really commendable, but I think what we need to think about is that that is just one measure of quality. So, if we think historically about the role that local authorities have in terms of quality improvement responsibilities, that in itself is is an ongoing journey. That challenge and support that local authorities offered, um, and I think very different from the idea that quality is just a single grade that's measured every three, four, five years. So, I think there's a, there's, a, there's arguably a. a debate to be had there around uh, quality improvement and quality monitoring, uh, who does those and and, and what measures are used. So um, some reports use Uh, the grading as a a single quality measure but there there are other uh, research reports such as SEED who use uh, ECAS for example as a a, a different tool of assessing quality so um, there's a kind of inconsistent use of quality measures I guess.
0: Sure and of course now local authority funding's been cut all those wonderful advisors who used to pop in when I ran my nursery um, and really be critical friends in a way to help raise the standards and help you think about and reflect about your practice. That's all gone. So there's really no support out there for settings who are all very willing, I'm sure, to improve their practice.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, as you say, that kind of infrastructure is now incredibly patchy across the the country in terms of local authority support. And arguably the funding is not there um, either to deliver the CPD from a local authority perspective or um, to access it from a, a setting perspective. So very different picture.
3: That leads into something that really struck me. In your report, you know sometimes how things just leap out at you, and there was one bit that really, so much leapt out at me. But there was one bit that really leapt out. It was about the childcare workforce being less qualified than both the teaching workforce and the general female workforce, and that was a CEDA kind of um, connected quote from two, 2017. And I just really thought about that, and I thought, and yet, this, you know, this this sector makes the biggest different difference in outcomes for children long term and therefore in fact the biggest impact on our society and the future of our society and yet you know they're the the, the, le- the least qualified and i know in your report you talked a bit about needing to level up the provision in our settings and i just wondered if you could talk a bit more about sort of the aspirations that we should have perhaps
1: yeah um i That's certainly a a really important point when we come to quality that um, we expect that any child going into a reception class will be taught by a qualified teacher. Um, but we don't, you know, some, something magical apparently happens between them turning three, four, um, and, and and before that, it doesn't matter whether they're taught by a graduate or not. And, and when you think about it that way, it's quite strange, isn't it? And we do have lots of research that demonstrates that having a graduate workforce who are working directly with the children does make a difference. There's quite a lot we don't know. There's a lot of research that needs to happen. There's much less um, research about graduate's working working with under threes, for example. Um, But we do know that graduate leadership, graduate pedagogic leadership, not somebody sitting in an office, but somebody who's out there with the children and working with um, the other. And it's not that we necessarily need the entire workforce to be graduates, but it's about that team and the way that you you make sure that everybody in the team has got the, um, the skills and the support that they need. Um, to make a real difference and that they've got the knowledge of child development that they understand they can spot where children need extra support they can understand the kind of activities that will make a difference um, and crucially that they're also effective at working with parents so we know a graduate workforce is really important. Why has this government given up on the aspiration to raise the, the level of graduates in, in the workforce? Um, they, they kind of seem to have said, oh, it's too hard, it's too expensive, and walked away from that. Which, of course, was the
0: whole point of the EYPS programme. Um, I was one of the first cohort. Um, I don't know how many EYPs that there are out there, but anecdotally, probably several thousand, and we used to meet um, in cluster groups and discuss all sorts of things, and there was a real buzz around raising quality, and you're absolutely right, uh, Beatrice, that it wasn't just about practice. It was about leading your staff team and working Mm. with parents. It wasn't, I hesitate to say, just the teaching role. It was a management thing. It was a leadership thing, Mm. and it seemed to be really working along the right lines, and it's a tragedy that that then turned into EYTs, which didn't really... get hold. And now
3: we've not got we're not very much at all in, in that kind of role. Mm. A real shame. That feeds right into that tug of war that we spoke about right at the beginning, that tension, doesn't it, between, you know, um, you know good early education. What is good early education? Well, it, it's got to be a balance between the, the flexibility and the affordability that is needed for the parent workforce, because that's the economic <laughs> rise out of poverty, hopefully, and that balance with that high quality, well valued, well qualified staff. And and you know that's the bit that that is becoming murky and that we're losing. It feels like and certainly your report is 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 showing that quite visibly. Sure. Mm-hmm. Oh.
0: So if we think about the, the eligibility for the 30 hours. Um, one of your recommendations from your report was that it should be extended to all families of three- and four-year-old children who are currently eligible for the disadvantaged two-year-old provision.
1: Why do you think that might help? And how might that so that follows on from what we were talking about uh, in relation to what makes a difference. So if you've invested in um, giving 15 hours to your disadvantaged two-year-olds so that you can try and close the gap, but then they move into nursery they're only eligible for 15 hours while their more advantaged peers are getting 30 you're going to see that gap increase again so it's really about trying to say um think about this holistically not sort of little separate scraps of policy that sit in different boxes um and think about how how do you continue that um trajectory for the, the disadvantaged two year olds that's going to mean that they they start to catch up and they keep catching up rather than losing the, any progress they made
0: so the 30 hours is
1: benefiting
0: better off families basically so is is there any evidence to suggest that it's providing sufficient financial benefit to lower earning families
2: so uh, yeah with the literature from the Res- resolution foundation seems to suggest that the um, it disproportionately benefits those families who are uh, higher earning families really sort of 40 to 50,000 pounds uh, per year and they calculated that the minimum wage households receive tax credits um but they made a gain of just £5 a week. So in a sense, that funding is being shifted from the 30-hour policy to a tax credit policy. So you, you can kind of see how that's working for those or not working for those um, lower-earning families. Of course.
3: Cool. <laughs> um, am I right in saying, in, just to get this straight in my mind, that the, the two-year-old offer and the universal entitlement were kind of, there to improve child development and the 30 year the 30 year the 30 hours of um, entitlement was aimed at increasing parental employment if, if we were to kind of separate them out in a quite a basic way
2: Absolutely, that's the rationale for those two policies Yeah, completely Uh, and that speaks to to Beatrice's point about the the differences in the eligibility criteria and how a a so-called disadvantaged two-year-old might move from a part-time place but then not benefit from the 30-hour place if their parents aren't working.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah
0: um we know that many nurseries were in dire straits before covid and certainly are now but why do some nurseries manage to be profit making and some not is it is it just to do with postcode the way that they can charge parents additional hours how do some people find it much easier than others to make a nursery viable
2: that's a great question with a very complicated answer, I think. Um, I mean, t- to my mind, there are multiple factors in, in that. And um, uh, you'll know that um, primarily the-, the largest proportion of a of, uh, uh, settings turnover goes on staffing costs, and the average is around 75%. But over and above that, there will be obviously fixed overheads and uh, the-, the settings, rent, mortgage, that kind of property costs will be a significant part of that expenditure, but I think over and above that um, there are local market issues as you suggest, the, the postcode which which impact on that and that's about um, the sufficiency of local provision and therefore the market. Um, it's about the settings uh, ability to charge certain fees, again dependent upon that local market. Um, and obviously occupancy levels as well impact on that, that, that picture about um, being able to turn um, surplus or, or, or profit. So, um, yeah, complex answer, I think.
0: Yes, yeah. The earliest pupil, pupil premium um, you recommend in your, in your report should be reviewed. Can you talk a little bit about what that means now um, what your suggestion of ever preschool meals and and applying that to EYPP means for, or could
1: mean, for families. Okay, so if we go back to the beginning of the early years pupil premium, the EYPP, this was a policy that essentially was introduced by the Lib Dems, and I think, you know, post coalition, we have to say that It doesn't feel as though the current government has really taken much interest in it. So there are two uh, ways in which funding is targeted uh, towards disadvantaged children within the early years. One is the disadvantaged supplement within the... the the hourly funding and the other one is early years pupil premium. Now this was modelled on school's pupil premium which was thought to be a great success, had been very effective at at closing the gap Um, but the problem with EYPP is it's um, far less, it's only £300 per child per year compared to about £1,000 in schools so the amount you've got to do anything with is quite small but also if you look at the number of children eligible, it's been about 8% of funding three and four-year-olds who've been able to claim that and if you look in the school sector um it's 20 something percent of children get pupil premium so the, the amount of disadvantaged funding coming in through early years pupil premium is really small and there are so many barriers to claiming it. The fact that you have to get parents to, to fill in forms, the fact that um, you have to uh, check it on a termly basis. Um, a lot of settings say, you know, for the amount of paperwork is just not worth it uh, and parents may not see because it's not money coming directly to them. They may not see the benefit to them. It doesn't mean that their children can get preschool meals or any kind of direct results. so it's it's something that I think there's there's quite a lot of positive feeling about even for the small amount of money that there is there seems to be some evidence that it, it, it has made a difference but really if it's going to be effective and if we look at the, the, the disadvantage gap which had closed over the last 10 years up until uh, 2017 and then for the last couple of years it's gone up again. Um, if we were serious about closing that gap then i think we have to have a lot more targeted support to try and make a difference
0: and regular i mean your your suggestion of if you um had free school meals in the last is it six years in school then then you still uh, are eligible for certain benefits if if settings are having to check on a termly basis whether their children are eligible for eypp you haven't got that
1: consistency at all to use Mm. that money in any meaningful way have you? Yeah, so we were seeing problems where settings would, by the time they found out which children were eligible, um, those children had virtually moved on to the next setting. And so it it, it was a, it's a very over bureaucratic system. And if you just say, once a child is eligible, they're eligible, and that's it, and you know what you're working with, you know what funding you've got, it's a much easier system.
3: So we're looking at basically the, 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 the idea would be that we'd be streamlining. That's the, that's the thing we're aiming for, is it to streamline the funding system so that there's the, 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 those barriers are removed, those complexities are removed.
1: Yes. And I think you could, you could probably, a piece of work that still hasn't been done is to look at what's the impact of the disadvantage funding through the hourly rate compared to the early years people premium. Is there a reason to have two different streams or does it just make sense to have one? Um, As long as you get the funding there, you minimise the bureaucracy, as long as you have a focus that says this is what this money needs to be used for. And for example, Ofsted will come in and say, what are you doing um, to support your EYPP children? That you know, that's really good for focusing minds and saying, right, we, we actually need to have a plan and and, and be able to demonstrate an impact. Um, but it it it's really the whole system could do with a review to say, is there enough money? Is it being well used? Is it too bureaucratic to claim it, and then move forward with something that would actually make a difference. Yes.
3: So this is a kind of related question to connected to one of your, the seven recommendations in the report. It was recommendation number six, I think. Settings, particularly those in deprived areas, should be encouraged and resourced to provide more direct support for parents in terms of the home learning environment. And I just wondered what, in, what in your mind, that kind of support might look like that, that settings could give to parents.
1: Okay. Okay. Well we know that some settings do really well, for example it's one of the areas we know maintained nursery schools are really good at working with parents. Um, Obviously where settings are co-located with children's centres sometimes there's some good integration with family support services. But even when there isn't, um, that kind of family support can be offered by the nursery because it's such a a promising, such a helpful environment. They've got parents coming in regularly as a matter of course. There's no stigma attached. Um, So you build relationships. And once you've built those relationships with parents, that's where you can start. So what we see in, in, in some, you know, where it's working well, is settings who notice the parents who are in need of more support, who seem to be struggling one way or another, help signpost them to other support services, help them with parenting issues, um, and who can make a real difference by that sustained relationship and sustained support over a period of time. And It's often been commented that actually, the the disadvantaged two-year-olds, as much as the 15 hours, Um, what was needed there was really good support for parents. So you're improving the home learning environment, you're improving the parenting skills, you're supporting... Um, what what will make most difference to children but the problem was that the two-year-old funding is not resourced sufficiently I mean it barely covers the cost of your 15 hours it doesn't cover the cost of time spent doing additional family support work and it's a little bit the same with all the entitlements they're really just focused on right get the children in for 15 hours and the best practitioners do understand that working with parents is integral um, and settings you know, who are committed make it work and they find ways of um, doing this. Often in their own time, it has to be said. What we want is a system that recognises this is a fundamental part and it should be resourced and it should be built into funding so that you can pay uh, pay staff to spend that time with the parents as well as with the children.
0: That brings us really nicely onto the early years workforce and the qualifications and experience and professionalism and how wide-ranging it is. Um, If we can think about the the 2017 workforce strategy in England, can you tell us a little bit about that and and how it fell short?
2: Yeah, I mean... (laughs) I, I think it was limited in its in its vision. If, it, if I'm honest, and I think there was a real lack of investment uh, that went alongside this as well. So you might remember that the 2017 workforce strategy focused on um, issues such as. Um, uh, the level three entry requirements. Uh, there were uh, some actions in there around a recruitment campaign, including uh, recruitment um, for men, uh, and uh, a, a sort of push on the early years teacher program as well. But over and above that, I, I, I think it's safe to say it was a missed opportunity. So uh, I don't think it was particularly bold, and, and I don't think it was particularly well resourced. Um, so um, I think moving forward, there's opportunities to uh, to kind of revisit those and. Um, And and be a bit more ambitious.
0: So there should be a long-term aspiration, uh, you mentioned earlier on, to have a qualified teacher in every setting. Um, How are we going to get that done? Where's the money going to come from? How are the EYT's going to get parity with QTS? All that um, situation is is incredibly complex.
2: It is, it is and and, and in our report we identified um, uh, a lot of uh, of evidence, a lot of lobbying for this push towards um, a kind of graduate led workforce a qualified teacher status uh, and um, I think the the response from uh, from government is is that one of the challenges is that the pay and conditions in the private and voluntary sector are obviously beyond. Uh, the the maintained sector paying conditions and that's a rationale used by policymakers for not uh, investing in in this sort of trajectory. Interestingly if we rewind a few years you'll remember um, the the quality premium that was part of the Graduate Leader Fund. So there's an example there in a previous administration where um, funds have been used to sort of top up uh, the salaries to be uh, to have a parity with qualified teacher um, pay, so I think that there's an example of how it can be done there. Um, so uh, clearly, some some moves to be made in that direction. Yeah, absolutely.
3: And of course, all of this is, is being done with a reduction in the amount, and I might hesitate to say, but quality of LA provided CPD as well, isn't it? For for settings to Qualify, you know, encourage qualifications within all of their staff. The, the LA was a resource, wasn't it? it, was a, it was a, in its heyday, it was a fantastic resource and there's been, there have been so many cuts that that's kind of another layer mm-hmm.
2: yeah.
0: mm-hmm. creating a, a to creating yeah. a one. You can't afford to send your staff on, on private training courses. The local authorities are not often mm-hmm. subsidized ones. Mm-hmm. Um, you perhaps don't have the time or resources to offer in-house training to your staff everyone's stagnant aren't they no one's getting any better and no one's developing their skills and and standards are not improving
3: and of course all of that sorry Helen I was just going to say all of that the irony of all of that is that the Ofsted new inspection framework includes this whole piece about CPD and professional development doesn't it that's one of the big things they're they're looking at now moving forward. Mm-hmm. Got any evidence to suggest that qualifies with
0: qualified teachers in early years settings, children's outcomes are improved? Obviously, we've said you know in school they are qualified teachers anyway, but is there any data collection there saying that, that it really is advantageous for children's outcomes?
1: So there, there was a lot of the evidence is focused on the impact of um, staff qualifications on quality rather than on outcomes comes directly, um, but the, there is a lot of evidence that having graduates uh, in in the workforce does make a difference. So the the Education Policy Institute did a, a kind of survey of the evidence and, and um, found there was a lot of evidence that did um, support this, um, but the, it's not always very nuanced. So if we don't know necessarily how, what kind of deployment of staff is what makes the difference. So we we think that it's about uh, those staff being in the front line rather than being in management roles. Um, But it is definitely an area where where more research is needed. Um, The other research that sometimes gets quoted around this, it was done by Joe Blandson and colleagues, where they looked at... um, the number of graduates in in the setting and the Ofsted rating and the children's outcomes in the EYFS profile and she struggled to find a link with the impact of Graduate quality, uh, but the thing that you have to say is that those are very, very broad brush measures. So I, I think the fact that she didn't, she and her team did not find a link, doesn't mean that all the other evidence that shows there is a link is wrong. It just shows that if you look at something like the Ofsted ratings, as as Nathan was saying earlier, they're they're, they're not necessarily a good proxy for measuring quality in the way that Echers or ITAS would would give you a measure of quality of the actual delivery of. Uh, early education in the setting and it doesn't necessarily give you a, a, a good correlation with outcomes and again the only sort of big measure we've got is the profile but again that's quite um, broad it it doesn't give you a very nuanced picture because everybody's sort of focused that the majority of children are sort of bunched in the middle at that sort of um, point of getting uh, each of the ELGs so I think we, we have to say that they, overall the evidence does support um, that graduates make a difference to quality but we need to know more about how um, and that that's a, an area of future research.
3: Is this a good moment to talk a bit about recruitment in early years the work for the workforce? Yes. I know there's I know in your report there was there's there's um, talk around the age of the workforce and, and the trajectory of where that might take us um, and how we replace our qualified members of staff and things like that. Who are leaving
0: the sector for better paid jobs, perhaps gaining yeah. QTS and then going into schools, leaving the sector altogether or retiring. Mm-hmm. Um,
2: and... Yeah. very much so Uh, there's there's sort of two strands of data there i think that we've highlighted in the report the first draws on um, education policy institute data which talks about the aging workforce as you say particularly a large proportion of um, uh, current members of the workforce, over 40 and over 50, so potentially retiring in the next 10 to 15 years. Uh, And then the other data which draws from both um, CEDA and NDNA surveys, which talks about uh, declines in the number of qualified uh, level three members of the workforce as well. So clearly uh, an ongoing challenge there um, of, of quite significant proportions, I think. Yeah.
0: What's the, um, the impact of a Level 3 uh, person in, a, in an early year setting? Is there evidence to suggest that if you've got Level 3, you're very much better than a Level 2 and practice changes, or is there nothing around that, that sort of data at the moment?
2: Not to my knowledge, no. I don't think that kind of um, link between qualifications and um, either children's outcomes or, or quality of provisions being, being tracked, no.
0: Do we know there are fewer level threes now than there were a few years ago? So, gradually, people are becoming more and more unqualified in settings, and just the minimum possible is, is available?
1: The the DfE don't collect data about the number of unqualified staff in settings but uh, I think it was the NDNA in their survey picked up that there had been quite a large increase in the number of unqualified staff in settings which we can understand given the current financial pressures so um, yeah there there are certainly some indications that that should be a concern. If we look at quality improvement, we've just talked about how local authorities
0: have lost their funding to undertake quality improvement and the ability to enhance practice through visits and monitoring professional training and so on. What do you propose as a solution? Is there anything that can be done apart from extra money being fed back to local authorities? How can settings get better?
2: Um, I think this is a really interesting one. And, and and obviously, we talk about Ofsted in terms of their sol- being a sole arbiter of quality. And I think we need, do need to remember that they are the regulator and, and inspector, as such. But um, I think we all remember a time where local authorities had a, a great deal more oversight uh, to uh, understand the local provision to support and, and challenge. And and um, I think we'd agree that, that, that sort of a, a return to that kind of model whereby. Those kind of mutual networks of support amongst providers that's facilitated by the um, by the local authority. Those communities of practice that you talked about when you were talking about the EYP program. Um, that to me would seem to be um, a, a, a productive, a positive way forward in terms of improving quality with that local knowledge, as opposed to relying on an, an inspection grade every three, four, five years. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if there's anything you want to add to the Yes, I,
1: th- I think there is just a, a sort of lack of policy around raising standards and uh, offering CPT to the workforce you, you get a lot of sort of um, warm words about it but the reality is that it does cost a certain amount of money because you have to have ratios that are flexible enough that you can take staff out of um, out of ratio to, to go and do CPD and we know that's a huge problem we know that people don't have the money um, to go out of setting or to bring people People in um, and you know there's so much possibility now with online learning and so on but it's still really hard for for people to access stuff and why should a, a workforce on the minimum wage be doing stuff in their own time it's not reasonable so I think you know we just have to press government to say you have to invest in the sector but it is an investment that will pay off in terms of outcomes.
3: <laughs> because of course we mustn't forget that, that- early years is such a specialized area isn't it you know it requires an immense knowledge of child development how children learn how we learn how we how we um, how we practice how we reflect it's it's an, it's such a wide-ranging area that that the idea that we don't require people to be well qualified to come into it and to constantly improve and grow in their practice is worrying it's, it's so worrying isn't it mm. -hmm. It's back to the we're just playing in early
0: years. We just put the sand Mm -hmm. out and we just let the children get on with it. So difficult to move away from that with people who are very resistant to thinking another than early years is just playing. Mm
2: -hmm. Absolutely.
0: I think um, we've gone full circle back on the childcare workforce. Thank you so much. It's been very, very interesting to speak to you about your um, new document. I'm going to remind our listeners what it's called. It's called Getting the Balance Right, published by the Sutton Trust in July 2020, Quality and Quantity in Early Education and childcare. And I urge everyone who's listening to this podcast to go and read it in the Middle East Digest.
3: Jules, have you got any more questions before we sign off no i think that was a nice as you say a nice circular way to, to finish so thank you so much nathan yes, and bitch thank
2: you you're welcome you're welcome thanks for the opportunity
0: thank you for joining us this week if you've enjoyed what you've heard and you'd like to listen to further episodes please subscribe and rate us wherever you like to listen to your podcasts thank you for listening bye